And often when we go through a process of change, which comes to the psychology of change, it's just like the stages of grief. You know, we start with denial that it even needs to happen. And then we may feel a sense of resistance and fear about what that means in terms of moving out of habit, sense of loss, uh, loss aversion around reputation maybe, or around uh, outcomes for patients. And then if we're lucky, we have someone like Mike Rose who can come along and activate our agency and and recognize that resistance is not personal, that resistance is human. Hmm. And that we need to engage that resistance by leaning into it and embracing it and learning from it and trying to understand what's really the root cause of that fear. That was Kate Hilton, our guest last week and this week. Kate is on the faculty of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and is the lead author of a new white paper entitled The IHI Psychology of Change Framework. She is also on the leadership of 100 Million Healthier Lives, the founding director of Rethink Health, and leadership faculty for the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity. She joins us today for the second part of our series to talk about her work on the Psychology of Change Framework. I'm Audrey Provenzano, and this is Review of Systems from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast along the top to subscribe or find more information about the show and information about our guest, Kate Hilton, and a link to the IHI white paper on the Psychology of Change framework that we're talking about today and last week. Thanks for listening. Okay, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. For folks who may not have listened to the previous show, can you tell us a little bit about what the IHI Psychology of Change framework white paper is about and how you hope people will use it? You got it. So the white paper is really a guide for any leader interested in understanding the underlying psychology of change and its impact, in this case, uh, on quality improvement efforts. And what we what we note is that improvement science has largely given folks uh, you know, a lot of theoretical frameworks and applied technical skills to understand variation, to study systems, to build learning, and to determine determine, uh, evidence-based interventions or the what of what we're trying to change or the implementation strategies, the how to, to achieve those outcomes. And healthcare improvers still struggle a lot with the adaptive side of change, which is more about unleashing the power of the people, the who, and their motivations, the why, to advance and sustain those improvements in the first place. And and those are very commonly cited reasons for the failure of improvement initiatives that we know from an evidence-based standpoint can and should work, um, which is that that we really have a hard time working together. So uh, that's the purpose of the of the paper. It, it presents a framework and a set of methods for the psychology of change, and it sets out five interrelated domains of practice that Uh, individuals, teams, and organizations can use to advance and sustain improvement. Okay. So I really encourage people to go back and listen to the first show in this series to fully understand what we're talking about. But we're going to dive in and talk some more about these domains that you just mentioned. So last week, we talked a lot about unleashing intrinsic motivation, and in particular about using public narrative to do that. Another component that you write about in the white paper is co-designing people-driven change. Can you describe what that means? Sure. So co-design occurs when people are designed with instead of designed for. Um, And so the idea really here is that those most affected by change 
and particularly those who are vulnerable, such as patients, uh, or mar- marginalized folks that have little power, um, have the greatest interest in designing improvements that are most meaningful to and workable for them. And so really it's, it's, it's a simple operating principle. It's like basically everyone who touches or is touched by an improvement at any level has something to contribute. And uh, at IHI, we refer to this as all teach, all learn. Hmm. I'm really struck by how you describe this. Co-design is design with instead of design for? That's right. Yep. And so one of the ideas about how to go about doing that is, especially when we come at improvement from a technical angle, you know, we're often thinking about the what, right? The, mm-hmm. the problem or the solution and the strategy we have to implement the solution. And um, what we're encouraging here is that we think about the who, so the we. So instead of what are we trying to accomplish, we say, what are we trying to accomplish, right? So who are the people in the first place? These could be internal stakeholders. So those would be those who are directly affected by the improvement. That could be, for example, a patient or their family. Uh, There could be external stakeholders. So those who would possess a shared set of values and interests in solving the problem. And that could be stakeholders more like health system leaders, providers, frontline staff. And so together, these stakeholders would work collaboratively to solve an improvement problem and to keep it solved. And so the focus here is to start by mapping out our people and understanding who they are, what their values are, what their interests are, what assets they have that they could bring to bear to solving this problem. And, you know, I have a great example, a wonderful story that's come out of the work of a partner of IHI, a strategic partner. There was a patient uh, in in Sweden. Uh, His name was Christian Farman, and he was unfortunately having to restart dialysis after having had a kidney transplant. Hmm. And he approached his nurse. Her name was Britt Marie Bank. And she had researched self-dialysis and he became convinced that he could manage his own treatment to reduce the impact of side effects uh, more effectively than the nursing staff could. And Britt Marie was very open to this. And together, she and Christian co-designed a new process through which he could independently manage his dialysis with fewer side effects. And then Britt Marie trained other patients in self-dialysis, which led to patients having dialysis more often because it was less burdensome for them. And over time, their infection rates decreased as a result. And so today, at their hospital, nearly 60% of their uh, peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis patients manage their own treatments with the aim to continue to increase that number to 75%. Hmm. And this model of patient-managed dialysis has spread to other health systems, including one in Texas, where the hospitalization rate of dialysis patients has fallen by one half and the mortality rate has decreased by a third. Wow. How, how would this look for something, you know, maybe a little bit more modest? If a primary care clinic wanted to co-design, uh, they wanted to redesign their rooming process using co-designing people-driven change strategy? How, how would that look? And what would be different about it than how we normally think about implementing prom- process changes in a clinic? So can you tell me how it would normally happen? Sure. So a patient comes in, they check in at the front desk, the secretary says, okay, have a seat. Uh, the MA will come and get you when, the, um, when there's a room available. The patient may wait for a very long time or not so long, depending. 
And then the patient would come into the back of the clinic and um, maybe uh, sit at a triage station, get their blood pressure taken, depending on what they needed that day, maybe a finger stick, maybe get weighed, and then get put into a room to wait to see the provider. Great. The first place we would start is by mapping actors and determining who would need to be involved in the co-design of that project. So that might be um, the receptionist, that might be the patient, that might be the patient's family. Let's say the patient has kids or an older adult. Uh, Let's say um, we have, of course, the nurse that's showing them to the room and then ultimately the provider. And so we would map, again, those internal actors. The person who's experiencing this is the patient, right? And then the external actors or stakeholders, the receptionist, the, uh, the nurse, the provider. And, uh, and what we would want to do is bring them together as partners for this improvement and to, first of all, become aware of their own biases. You know, the, the nurse might be thinking, how can I make this efficient for me? Or the provider you know, thinking, how can I leverage my time most effectively? And the receptionist may be, you know, thinking about their own biases and the patient their own. And so part of it is to uh, uncover together through authentic conversation, you know, their various intentions uh, as well as their values and what what they might bring to the conversation in terms of their assets, what they um, they bring from their experiences, for example. And then they begin to identify areas of alignment and turn that into co-designed improvement. So in this case, they may... Um, you know, who knows what they come up with when they get into conversation, but the idea is to facilitate the conversation and really understand from the patient experience what would be effective, but also what would be uh, efficient. So, you know, let's say the patients felt like they could, you know, in the waiting room, go to a a little cubby where they could weigh themselves Mm -hmm. and have that taken care of. Or maybe they feel that they could fill out Uh, you know, any sort of questionnaires that would be taken prior to the visit, you know, on an iPad, let's say, that that would go straight to the provider. Mm. Or maybe there's a little cubby to have their blood pressure taken with an automatic blood pressure machine. So there there could be, you know, lots of ways to think about the design uh, of the process, how to make it more efficient for the providers, and also make it more active and interactive for the patients, if that's their value. And it Mm. may not be, it may be, I'm sick, (laughs) And I just want to have a, you know, maybe I want to be cared for directly by the nurse and I don't want to have to do things for myself. Mm -hmm. I want to, to have someone there to usher me through it. Part of it is understanding what those views are and challenging each other to think outside of, you know, their normal way of producing ideas and then to test together. Hmm. Um, And so that it's not just like, well, thank you for your idea and see you later. Um, but it's like, let's test this and let's let's then together talk to other patients and see how this works. And so it's not like an extraction or a harvesting and a recognition that a patient is a representative. It's actually the patient has power then to continue to refine and improve the improvement initiative, uh, him or herself, uh, together as part of the team. Hmm. You also urge leaders to distribute power. And I was really drawn to this idea because we are already so hierarchical in healthcare and medicine. So 
in an environment that is so profoundly hierarchical, how does a leader distribute power? Well, we have a lot to explore here. Uh, <laughs> uh, one is about what do we mean by distributing power? And I think a second is about courage and the relationship between power and courage, both of which are really needed in the distribution of power. Right. So first, just to revisit about power, here we're, again, we're not talking about power as a position or a title that one has. Uh, it's not a thing. It's not a quality or a trait. It's, it's relational. It's produced by a set of interdependent relationships that can be changed to achieve any specific aim. And it's generated as people bring to bear their skills, their knowledge, their expertise, their capacity to act both individually and together to achieve an aim. And that's, that's what we mean by um, relational. You know, we can build power with people or we can exercise power over people. And often when we encounter in healthcare uh, the exercise of power over us, it is not experienced uh, generally as motivational. And so sometimes we need to build power with to challenge power over. Now, if you're a healthcare leader who finds oneself in a position of authority, you know, that position brings with it just maybe decision-making power as an asset or uh, access to resources uh, that one can allocate as an asset. But that itself isn't necessarily what we mean by power. And the reason why that's hopeful is that it's not static. You know, it can be changed. And when we distribute um, power, what we're thinking about here is basically many people within a system that could be across a variety of different boundaries or levels working together to create conditions to accomplish a shared purpose, which with each person playing a necessary and interdependent role. And so, you know, if we take that last example, you know, the patient and their family bring a critical perspective and experience to the uh, development in co-designing uh, new rooming process. Uh, because they're the ones experiencing what that feels like and, and what it's like as a lived experience. And, uh, and, and that maybe they don't have any positional authority. Maybe the senior leader who's bringing, um, you know, the ability to commit resources to make this improvement effort work, you know, that's necessary too. So both of them are necessary for success. Uh, you know, frontline staff will bring knowledge of the improvement tested and how to systematize it as a, um, a process within a unit, you know, again, also necessary for success. So it's looking at what we bring as a set of assets and thinking about how to help people bring that to bear through their relationships, at open transparently in a participatory matter as, as peers working to achieve an outcome and that it gives people a sense of agency, the ways in which they're working together so that they're able to, you know, channel that, that energy in the desired direction towards the outcome that they seek. And there's, there's plenty of examples that we could also explore. Sure. Um, I'm not really sure what kind of example to, to give. Oh, you know, we could go back to um, Dr. Rose uh, okay. and his example, right? Great. So he, he was trying, as you recall from our last time together, he was trying to support surgical teams to adopt the surgical safety checklist brief and debrief. Right. And a lot of the, the nurses and the technicians experienced surgeons' resistance to this as asserting power over them to maintain the status quo. Right. Now, ironically, when Dr. Rose spoke with the surgeons, he experienced them as feeling powerless. 
that they felt a deep sense of responsibility around the patient outcome and very little ability to imagine any other way to be responsible for that than to be in control. And it was scary to share power with nurses and with technicians and with anesthesiologists and others in the OR because they hadn't tried that before. And often when we go through a process of change, which comes to the psychology of change, it's just like the stages of grief. You know, we start with denial that it even needs to happen. And then we may feel a sense of resistance and fear about what that means in terms of moving out of habit, uh, sense of loss, uh, loss aversion around reputation maybe, or around uh, outcomes for patients. And then, uh, if we're lucky, we have someone like Mike Rose who can come along and activate our agency and and recognize that resistance is not personal, that resistance is human, hmm. and that we need to engage that resistance um, by leaning into it and embracing it and learning from it and trying to understand what's really the root cause of that fear and helping that person identify that for him or herself to see it in the light, not because it's going to make you you know, squash the fear. That's not the point. It's simply to see it and say, how, how, how big a fear is that really? You know, and what, what else could we do to, you know, to support you in that? And, and to explore that together, once we get into a stage of helping someone explore, they shift from uh, resistance to exploration. Now that shift can go back and forth between exploration and back to resistance and back to <laughs> exploration, where we start testing some ideas together or thinking about what it could look like. And by the way, you know, these folks are helping us improve our implementation strategies. So hmm. we need to thank them for the resistance, right? Because they're helping us see what's really going to be at the cause here. Hmm. And, you know, as Dr. Rose started to see that, that this was an issue of feeling powerless um, and, and, and almost himself like being surprised because the, you know, on the, on the other hand, it was experienced by surgical teams as, being asserting power over. And so what they did is they started building again those conversations where they brought those stakeholders together to co-produce in really authentic relationships where they were deeply listening to each other and they were asking each other open honest questions about their calling to practice medicine or nursing in the first place. That allowed them to start to share, you know, where they were coming from and hear each other's motivations but also understand and empathize with one another in such a way that they could work together to develop a test of change. And it's, you know, starts with those tests of change. And as you explore those tests of change can then generate commitment, a real sense of both understanding and integration into our practice. And that's what started happening as people committed to testing together the use of the checklist. Mm. And so then we move again from resist from, you know, denial, resistance, exploration to commitment. And we continue to go through that process all the time as we're adapting in action, we're making things better as we go. And that, as we bring people along with us, we're building power with them. And as we build more and more power, we can think of Everett Rogers' diffusion of innovation curve. And we'll, we'll pass that uh, early majority. And then at that point, we have so much power with, it can be asserted to, to bring the resistors along. Hmm. Sort of those who once were exercising power over, they fundamentally have changed that power relationship because we've distributed so much power now that we could advance this wide scale adoption of, of this improvement. Hmm. 
to wrap up, how do you envision and hope that people in primary care can utilize this framework? And, you know, what are maybe the few concrete takeaways that, that you want readers to take from it? Sure. So, I mean, none of this is rocket science. <laughs> this is, this is the but it's human really stuff hard. Life. Yeah, no, it's, it is really, really hard, but it's also stuff we're doing all the time, mm-hmm. telling stories, relating to people, listening, thinking about how to understand our own biases and that, that of others to, to improve the, our design of improvements. And so what I would encourage is that folks listening, you, I know you're already doing some of this. I know you must have some knowledge of any of these areas of, you know, the, the fields of sociology or psychology or the applied methods of change management, quality improvement, organizing, scaling up, teamwork. I mean, there's so many starting points. And what I would say is start where you are. Um, you know, do what you do well already, see that as an asset, and then bring an intentional lens to what you're doing. You know, what isn't working about that and what might need to shift? What else could you test from the framework, from maybe one of these other domains where you feel like, oh, I don't know as much in that area, uh, and incorporate that into your repertoire. And like any good improver, you know, test it and then use improvement science to improve at it and measure the effectiveness of the practice itself, you can do that by seeing the difference over time, having used it or not, or using it in some sites and not in others. And by all means, please share your learning. Share your learning with your colleagues. Uh, and share your learning with Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> and share your learning with us at IHI because we'd, we'd love to learn with you how to continue to improve the framework. Wonderful. Kate, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, Audrey. You've been listening to Review Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check out our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on our West podcast along the top to find more information about the show, links to prior shows, and links to subscribe. You can find more information about our guest, Kate Hilton, there as well, and a link to the IHI Psychology of Change Framework white paper. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen and share us on social media. You can find our guest, Kate, on Twitter. Kate, what is your handle? It's Kate B. Hilton. And you can find me at Audrey MDMPH and our show at ROS Podcast. Tweet us feedback and suggestions, or you can email me at contact at ROSpod.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>